Good morning. Um, as we prepare to, as we draw near to the end of this grand book, the book of Romans, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, this message could be a plain message or it could be a message that we remember for the rest of your lives and only you can do that. And so we pray that you would apply the scripture to our heart, spirit, mind, soul, and hands so that we are empowered by Christ to see him and to will to glorify him out of, out of love for him and especially because of his mercy. And I pray that you would open our lips to speak of the mercy of Christ in ways we never would have before because we were too shy, too embarrassed, too busy, or too worried about what others might think of us. Lord, we pray that you would liberate us from the bonds of selfishness, from the bonds of besetting sin, from everything that holds us back from seeing ourselves as you see us and living out with boldness the call of God on our lives, toiling with all of your energy which so powerfully works in us. May it be, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. This message is a reminder of how God is building his kingdom on earth through each of us. What is the kingdom of God in the Bible? What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God is where God is. The kingdom of God is God's people. The kingdom of God is God's people with him living in their midst, doing God's will to glorify his name and his glory exploding like a fireball in all the earth. And that is the future destiny of the world and nothing can stop it. And each of us has a key part to play. And that, I think, is the main point of this closing chapter and half of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Paul says the most wonderful complimentary thing. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Remember Romans chapter 1? It was kind of a depressing chapter to get through. Romans 9 was a tough one, and there were multiple other difficult spots. Romans 1 basically said, you have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's way worse than you ever imagined. And that's the opening of his letter. That was pretty bold. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister or servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So he sees himself as this modern day priest, and you should too, see yourself that way. So that the offering of the Gentiles, because priests are always bringing offerings, so that the offering of the Gentiles 
may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders. Lord God, we need more signs and wonders, and we also need the character to be able to hold your glory and not be destroyed by temptation. So give us these things, Lord. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, could we get that map up? From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. Um, I forgot the laser pointer, so I'm going to point. So here's Israel, right, on the far eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and the Roman Empire, where uh, they had common, uh, some common culture, common government, common uh, travel and such, uh, was everything around the Mediterranean Sea. So here's Jerusalem right here, and all the way around here, Paul had traveled all the way up. This is modern-day Turkey. There you see Asia. That means the province of Asia there. All the way around there, here's modern-day Greece. So all across Greek territory, and there is Illyricum. It's the next thing over is Italy. The next thing over is Rome, the capital of the empire. Paul said, mm-hmm. And I'll keep going, but could we keep the map up for just a second, and then you could cut it off and cut into the text. By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry or service of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. This is what Paul was all about. This is the only thing he cared about in life. And this should, by the power of God, be the only thing you care about in life. And every one of us has a part, every single one of us in this room, every single one person watching, and every person reading this scripture in the kingdom of God around the world has a specific and important part to play, as we will see. Paul said, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is what he was all about, and he wanted to go by Ro to Rome and, and go there too, but he was busy because he kept giving up his desire to go to Rome to finish the work that God had given him because nothing else mattered to him. He, he was sold to Christ Jesus. And that, friends, is your identity also. And you must receive that and act on it again every morning because we get discouraged and because we forget and because we get tempted. Paul was busy with this call, and he said, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. I always want to hang out with, uh, John Bradbury called me up this week, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to get together and hang out, you know, just to, just to hang out. And, uh, and, and, I, and I was busy, and I didn't have time for a, a movie. And, uh, 
And this has been going on for like six months. I think we've <laughs> watched a movie once or something in the last six months. But that you, I used to be all about the movies. Like, if possible, every night, if I could, I'd make myself dinner back when I was single and I wasted a lot of time, most of it, and, and I would try to sit down for a movie. And that was like my dream. Like, I just want to make, I just want to cook and, and eat it and watch a movie. And I still have those temptations, but, but your life changes when the call of God gets a hold of you. Amen. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. I was like, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't make it. <laughs> but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, you see, and if we could get the map up again, Thank you. Um, he had gone to strategic cities, Jerusalem, Antioch, from which he was sent by the church there, all around through these areas, Cilicia, Cappadocia, Asia. All of the, the epistles in the New Testament have names like Ephesus, Galatia, Philippi, Colossae. All of these names come from places, and they're cities mostly on the coast, all around what's modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece and all around to Illyricum because he visited those places. He went on three missionary journeys. And this letter was probably written in the year 57 from Corinth, which is, I'm going to jump, right here, okay? And he's probably, um, he's probably in his early 50s. Uh, he could have been a couple years older, a couple years younger. He's been doing this for maybe 27, 30 some odd years, right? He's been doing this ever since... He met the Lord, and the Lord showed him that everything he thought in life, and, and he knew a lot. Brother Saul knew a lot. And something like scales fell from his eyes when he met the Lord. And he found out that he knew nothing. And he made up his mind to spend the rest of his life knowing nothing except this gospel of Christ. So he probably wrote this um, at the end of his third missionary journey, right before going back to Jerusalem. And he has only a few years left in life. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, because the gospel had been planted in all of these strategic cities, and he knew that because it was the destiny of Christ, of the world, to, to be a part of Christ building his church until it fills the world... Um, the gospel would go out from all of these strategic cities all around this uh, western Mediterranean world and, or this eastern, the eastern Mediterranean world. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and now he wanted to move west and he wanted to go to Spain. I hope to, he said, I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Why were they poor? Why weren't they rich? Why didn't they save money and have businesses? Yell it. They already knew it was going to be destroyed, so they sold all their stuff and they had everything together in common. And why else? <laughs> Famine. Why else? 
They were being persecuted. All of the above are true. And so the Christians there were poor. And Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, do you remember the beginning of the book of Acts from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth, the gospel was to go. And so Christ said, I came to, you know, the Jews. Paul said to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles, the gospel went. So the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. There's really no such thing as Christianity that happens strictly in front of a TV. That's not a real thing. Christianity is practical and it will cost you everything you have, your time, your money, your, maybe your reputation, maybe your life. And that is glory to God and something you'll look back on and you'll say, I'm so glad I had the chance to give it all. And they were pleased to do it, knowing that they owed it to them. And so they were of service to them in material blessings. Paul says, when therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul's there probably in Corinth. He's getting ready to take the money back so that people have food to eat and clothes to wear and so on, the saints, and he knows that persecution is waiting for him. Do you remember his address to the Ephesian elders? We can't go there, but if that brings back some striking memories to you from the book of Acts, um, you'll know that he knew persecution was waiting for him there. And he, he is like begging them to pray that they don't kill him. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of this section, Romans 15, 14. We said this is a reminder of how God is building his kingdom on earth through each one of us. And we're going to look at several ways that we see how he's doing that and that we also participate in and must. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another, or competent to instruct competent to admonish, competent to warn, competent to counsel. So, Paul just said, 
ordinary Christians, like this gospel stuff, this discipleship stuff, isn't for your congregations, deacons, elders, pastors, shepherds, uh, overseers, bishops. It's, it's, it's for ordinary Christians. Ordinary Christians are full of the goodness of God, are full of the knowledge of God, and are competent to instruct, admonish, warn, and counsel one another. And this needs to be each of our lifestyle. If you don't have these kinds of relationships, and if you don't see yourself that way, come to Jesus. I'm just kidding, but seriously. Greg just said the, the, there's this idea that we ought to send people to professional counselors, but um, I think it was the year that I read uh, J.E. Adams' Competent to Counsel that I realized, oh, I'm pretty spiritually immature, and yet I'm competent to have these kinds of relationships with, with, uh, with uh, my connections in the family of God, and, and this is normal Christianity. And if I don't think of myself as one of the people who's doing the work of the ministry, then it's kind of like I'm not. But that's not, that's not the way it really works. That's not church. That's like a weird thing. It's kind of heretical. Ordinary Christians are full of the goodness of God, the knowledge of God, and are competent to counsel. Verse 15 Paul says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. And we pointed out a couple of the very bold things that he wrote, you know, like, like you are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he lists ways, he's like, you who, you know, say, I don't break these commandments, do you do, you do these? Um, that's a bold word. Not only is the kingdom built through ordinary Christians knowing that we're full of the goodness of God and the knowledge of God and pursuing that, because that's something that must grow if we're to be well competent, the kingdom is built through bold rebuke and reminder. Don't shy away from it. People need you to be clear and to not beat around the bush. People need need you to tell it to them straight. Your brothers and sisters, your, your children, they need you to respectfully give it to them straight. Anything short of that will not be effective, right? And this is something some of us have to grow in. Don't shy away from receiving that. Receiving bold rebuke and bold reminder is not unloving or impolite. Receiving bold rebuke and, and, and admonishment and reminder is part of how every one of us grows up, and without it, we will not grow up. And without it, we won't be equipped to do the work of the ministry. We need it. Don't shy away from it or view it as rejection. Instead, this is the way of God 
to build you up. It's not, it's not taking your legs out from under you. It's giving you a gift that strengthens you. But it's heavy, and it's hard to hold at first, right? Verse 16, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul saw himself as a priest of God, and he got that in part from Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, verses 19 through 21, say, I'm going to skip partway down, um, those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, the, the coastlands far away, those who have not see, heard my fame or seen my glory, does that immediately take your mind to the map of the coastlands of the Mediterranean where Paul, who saw himself as a priest of God, was going and preparing the Gentiles to present them as an offering to God? Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. That's saying Gentiles are brothers and sisters, their family with the Jews. They shall, who's they? It's, it's Paul and it's you and me. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Same word Paul used on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites burn their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. How can a Gentile be a Jewish Levite? I guess this is a new kind of priesthood. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 6 says, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers or servants of our God. That's what Paul just said of himself. And that is your identity too, according to Isaiah 61. Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. Speaking to the people of Israel who had come out of Egypt and all of the Egyptians and the mixed multitude who had come up with them. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is not just an Old Testament idea. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you, this is Peter writing to the church, right? But the church specifically all over, scattered all over the Mediterranean world, these same congregations. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race. How can they be a chosen race when they're mixed and they're from like every country and ethnicity and background and culture and you have Thracians and Macedonians and Cretans and Arabs and Jews? How, come you, how can you have, uh, you know, barbarians and Scythians and slave and free, you know, brutal warrior people who are, who are feared like the Assyrians had been feared? How can you have the cultured and educated Greeks? And now Peter's saying, you are a chosen race. It's because there are only two races in the world. There are only two people groups in the world. There are only two nations in the world. There are all lumped together, as the Bible does, the kingdoms of men or 
the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Satan, the dominion of Satan, and then there's the people of God. You are a chosen race, one blood in Christ's blood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We belong to God. It is, when I'm insecure, it has been deeply comforted, comforting to me hundreds and hundreds of times to know that I belong to God. Just, I meditate on that often. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Finally, this is not just an Old and a New Testament theme. This is in the capstone, the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.6, that Jesus has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You are priests. We are the kingdom of God, and we're building the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place doing God's will for his own glory. Paul saw himself, uh, you, you are priests, citizens of the kingdom, mediating the presence of God into the world until the kingdoms of men become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Romans 15, let's skip down to verse 19. Paul is bringing this gospel by the power of signs and wonders. It wasn't just with clever teaching or logic or good presuppositional apologetics, although he indeed used that because, as some have called it, Romans is one of the, the greatest logical works and most important pieces of literature in history. It's a masterpiece. And yet, Paul says, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, and I, when I came to you, brothers, remember he's probably writing this from, writing Romans from Corinth, and now we're citing the letter to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wasn't about his pedigree, and he didn't work on proving his reputation. He brought, instead, he was with you in weakness and in much fear and much trembling. Can I get an amen? Who likes going out to do cold call evangelism? I, I think Paul didn't like to, in a sense, in, or at least something in him didn't. I was with you in weakness and in, much, and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my proclamation were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The, the full gospel of God includes signs and wonders. The gospel is that God is great and 
Christ, he sent his son down from heaven to have mercy on sinners, atheist sinners, and brought us by his great power to God consciousness that we might be a part of his people in the whole world to glorify him, especially for his mercy, and to disciple others to do everything he has commanded us until we see him face to face. That always comes with power. Sometimes in the history of the church and in local congregations, there are more or less miraculous works. And we ask God for those and we wait on him for more of those because that's part of normal Christianity. Sometimes there's less. It is always with power. One of the most powerful things I've ever seen happen in somebody's life was the conversion of uh, one of our own, Stephen Leopold. I remember I attended the prayer meeting where they were praying for him. Uh, he, he had been a Christian for a little while, and then they laid hands on him and prayed for some demons to be cast out of him, and he went through, you know, a, uh, he repeated an affirmation of the gospel, a uh, gospel prayer, a salvation prayer as you might know it, and they uh, prayed for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he forgave some people he had never forgiven and renounced some things. And I went home halfway through the meeting because I, I was pretty tired and I wanted to get a good night's sleep. And I wish I hadn't because the next, day, the next time I met him, a day or two later, he was a new man. It was, like, it was like when the Holy Spirit clothes somebody in the Old Testament and they become a new man, like it said. It even said that of Saul, who didn't even walk with God. But this is norm if that's normative encounters with unbelievers who encounter the glory of God, how much more necessary and normative is it for believers when we encounter the risen Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit to have a supernatural work done in our heart where we're changed from the inside out? The gospel only comes supernaturally. It's never academic or intellectual only, although it is always intellectual and academic partly. I think this is going to be a two-parter. Verse 20, Paul said, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, uh, but as it is written, and so on. And then he said, I wanted to come see you, but I was hindered because I had to do what God had called me to do. He said, I make it my ambition. What is your ambition in life? In his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you encounter the risen Christ, you're overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, and you meet Christ at the cross. And there, kneeling before him, you find that his mercy is enough and his love is enough to cover over my multitude of sins. And you never forget it. 
And you go through the gospel as a Christian again and again. You go through that same gospel process. You're renewed in this gospel with power. And it's the mercy of God that, that is the, the high point or the most brilliant point of the glory of God in Christ. And remember in chapter 12, chapters 11 and 12, it's our response to the mercy of God that, that fills us with gratitude and wonder again and again. Gratitude and wonder and praise. And this is our message when we're sharing the gospel. We're telling those around us in our everyday lives that God was merciful to me, a sinner, and we're praising him. That's, the gospel. That's what you need to share and everything else with it, the whole package. But Paul said, this is my ambition, to share this gospel and, and to begin to, to disciple all the nations. What's your ambition in life? Mine used to be playing risk and uh, playing historical war reenactment board games as much as I could. I used to be a video game junkie. When possible, I played video games for hours and hours and hours, and uh, I had a giant jug of juice and a Costco-sized package of goldfish so that I could get all my fluids and nutrition all in one place without having to get up so I could play my video game in my room for as many continuous hours as possible. Sometimes we have low ambitions, but we grow up. And the gospel sets us free to let yesterday's mistakes and yesterday's low ambitions be yesterday, even if they only happened one minute ago. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from shame and from sin, even from most sense of regret. It certainly sets us free from guilt. The gospel is both practical and powerful, and being renewed in this gospel day by day, we have endurance and encouragement and hope so that we don't do that thing that all of us have done where we say, well, I just failed or I've already started to fail. I give up, I give in, and we keep going into whatever temptation and sin. That's not the gospel process. Identify that thinking and kill it. It's a snake. It's coiled around your leg. Shake it off. It's shackles. What is your ambition, though? Is it to have a lot of fun or to relax or to retire or to win respect? Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If God was willing to have this kind of mercy on me, then he can have all of me until I die. Other ambitions are always, are constantly creeping up. Little idols that we make because we are idol-making factories. No, if Jesus came down from heaven to shoulder all my sin and shame, then I'm not withholding anything from him. My ambition is to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to raise disciples to see the boundaries of the kingdom of God grow as more and more people stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord that is filling the whole earth. It's happening right now, and you have a chance to leave everything to follow him and be a part of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18.
Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, which means do, follow, give everything for, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is how we glorify God in this world, not by having a private religion in our hearts, but by having a practical religion. We're gonna pick this up next week, um, but we'll stop there. A preview for next week, it takes time, it takes money, it takes prayer, it may cost you your life, you will suffer. The Greek word for um, tribulation, translated tribulation is typically flipsis, a Greek word. It means a pressing together as of grapes. Christ said that, that the fruit belongs to him. You are the fruit of the work the gospel foundations laid in the generation of Christians before you. You're the fruit. You also, planted where you are, will grow and there will be more fruit and God will cause the increase. But all disciples, all the fruit that he causes to be born will be pressed together as of grapes, squeezing and pinching, flipsis, tribulation. It is worth it. No matter what it costs you, you will never regret anything, any hour, any bank account, any relationship, whatever you had to give up to give everything to Christ, to lay everything on the altar, to follow him, whatever you had to leave behind, you'll never regret it, though it cost you dearly. Christ came down from heaven and he laid aside his glory. If then he should suffer on your behalf, how can you withhold anything from him? Amen. Please come.